0: Now on Documentary on News Talk, in the first of a two-part documentary, Mary Brophy retraces the story of the supposedly unlikely friendship between two farmers and an ecologist, and how their shared love of wildlife saw them attempt to reverse the devastating impacts of decades of intensive farming on biodiversity in The Farmers Who Went Wild.
1: The Irish landscape is growing silent. Farmland birds have disappeared at an alarming rate. Insect and bee populations have plummeted. In 2021, two-thirds of all bird species on the island are now in trouble because they have neither habitats nor food. Nature is under attack, and agricultural policy is the primary cause. But this is not the story you've grown used to hearing only about how bad everything is and who wants to argue about who's to blame. This is a story about trying to do something about it. My name is Mary Brophy, and you're listening to The Farmers Who Went Wild, a documentary about the supposedly unlikely friendship between two farmers and an ecologist, and how their shared love of wildlife saw them attempt to reverse the devastating impacts of five decades of intensive farming in one Cork River Valley.
2: The farm, the farm
1: Donald Sheehan and I are walking out to the fields of his dairy farm in East Cork. This land is farmed with a focus on maximising grass yields for his milking cows. And Donal is the third generation to farm here.
2: Uh, my father retired when I was 24. And I, so I took, it, I took it over at that stage. So all full of, yeah, all full of. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do something major here. You now, we're gonna really rock on, and 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 that's the way any young person would be coming out of college. You were in charge now, and uh, it was up to you to shape the farm the way you wanted it. Uh, but also, I suppose you're always conscious of uh, that thing about leaving the farm better uh, than when you got it. And were you happy to take it over? Oh, I was absolutely yeah. When you get a farm when you're young, you have the enthusiasm to, to lay down a mark. rather than when you get it when you're 30 or 40 and the enthusiasm is gone. So it, it, was, it was great on his part to, to, to hand it over and um, it worked out very well, yeah.
1: The farm sits just outside Castle Lyons in the beautiful Bride River Valley of Cork. Farmers work this fertile landscape intensively and Donal was no exception when he took over. Keen to adopt the most up-to-date practices and advice.
2: I would have run the farm at the time, uh, really purely based on production, getting the maximum out of the farm, uh, and because the more milk you get, the more income you got. So everything would have been manicured. There would have been, you know, would have kept the hedges really n- nice and trimmed, and you know, sprayed the field margins, and uh, you know, no room for for weeds and and anything that was competition against milk, you know, that's, that was the focus, you just take it out. It, it, for, for any person to come into this farm, they'd say, oh, this is a really well-run farm, you know, this is a real progressive farmer.
1: That drive for progress and efficiency had taken hold on Irish farms long before Donald took over his. In 1973, Ireland became a member of the European Economic Community its Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP, had been a key reason to join, as it allowed us access to Europe's lucrative market of 300 million consumers for our agricultural exports, and promised to significantly increase Irish family farm incomes. CAP was originally designed to provide a stable supply of affordable food for Europe's citizens, by supporting farmers directly and improving agricultural productivity. And it worked. Practices were modernized, Farming specialized, and new research and artificial fertilizers would make an exact science of even growing grass. Across five decades, the Irish landscape changed, as farmers embraced the efficiency, productivity, and profitability that each incarnation of Cap promised. Wetlands were drained, silage replaced hay meadows, fields grew bigger, as did the tractors, and a lot more cattle were put out on those fields. But something else was happening.
2: I mean, I grew up with um, myself and my siblings always waiting, not to, to see the first swallow, but actually to hear the first cuckoo. And that only lasted a year or two, I'd say, that, that I can remember. I'd say it was five or six and, and that the cuckoo disappeared. And the cuckoo hasn't been back yet. So that's, that's over 40 years now that that really? bird has been gone. The corncrake, which my father tells the story of, of um, cutting hay with, with, a, with a horse and, and a cutting machine and lifting corncrake chicks um, out of the, the swat and putting them in near, near the hedgerow. The corncrake was gone before I came here. So the unfortunate thing is all these species that are gone, we, we, we kind of assumed that they were never there. Um, and then you have uh, skylark would have been here. Um, that's gone. Um, Meadow Pippets would have been here. They're gone. know that they're not gone countrywide, but they're gone from intensive farming areas.
1: Ecologists may have shouted the warnings, but the changes were so gradual and insidious that few farmers paid attention to what was happening. Donal certainly didn't. But a while after taking over the farm, Donal also inherited his father's beehives.
2: He would have been the beekeeper, and... I would have kind of, you know, given him a hand now and again, but I wasn't. Uh, I wouldn't have been hands on. So the decision had to be made in whether I'd keep on with the bees or whether I just let, let him off. It was the very same focus. How, how could we get, you know, as much honey as possible? And we weren't never selling honey, but it was really rewarding to, to, to produce your own honey, and that reward. Is never financial but it was, it's a reward that you, you, you have to put a value on yourself mm. and it is so rewarding to be able to give a person a pot of honey that, that came from your own farm so there was a great pride in it and then I started focusing as I said on, on trying to produce more honey and of course that was totally in, uh, going against um, what we were doing already taking out all the, the weeds and the wildflowers so the more wildflowers you have uh, the more honey you have uh and then when when you're when you're talking about milk, I suppose the more grass you have uh, the the more milk you get and the more income you get uh so you you know you could take out the hedgerows and take out all the field margins and you've more milk but you've you've nothing left for the pollinators and it was actually the bees that was giving me more it was more rewarding to 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 harvest the honey than it was the the milk i don't know why either. that's just the way that's the value I get out, out of out of beekeeping and um so it, it, It was all about uh, creating that balance whereby you have to put a value on something that there's no financial value on, if you know what I mean.
1: The bees created a dilemma for Donal. The way he was managing the land to produce more and more milk meant that there was no space left for nature. So if he wanted more honey, he'd have to change the way he farmed. It was that simple. Turning back years of advice and best practice that thousands of farmers like him had adopted to increase yields and profitability...
2: I realised very quickly that, that there needed to be a balance here and uh, so straight away, almost, we started um, trying to do things that, that would benefit pollinators and bees uh, as, as much as, as produce food or, or, or milk. So we, we let the hedgerows grow and we stopped spraying the field margins and we increased the width of the field margins. and if there was, you know, wildflowers, i.e. weeds growing, we'd tolerate them to a degree, mm. uh, and to a much larger degree, actually. And so we brought a, a much more of a balance into the way we farmed. It's it's about the enjoyment, the enjoyment you get out of farming. Like, you, you have to have an income, but if you don't enjoy the income, it's about liking your job. And, and for me, I think unbeknownst to me at the time, I think it was, the sound of birds singing, the the, the visual uh, uh, appearance of hedgerows, uh, seeing blossom on the trees, uh, things like that matter. And there was never a value put on them. So you, uh, the farmer or, or, or anybody has to put a value on them and, and say, you know, what does it work to you uh, to be able to go out early in the morning and hear birds singing and see all the visual aspects of nature that are on a farm. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely blessed that, that I have a farm, my friends, the, 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 they don't have farms, and they actually they, they have to go and, and take a journey to here and see what I see every morning of the week, and that's an absolute blessing. It's it's just totally changed the, the mindset. And you know, the great thing was the wheels didn't fall off the cart, and the income still came in, and uh, and we still and we have our honey as well.
1: As the bees thrived and birds started coming back to the hedgerows, Donald's passion for nature grew. He joined the Cork branch of Birdwatch Ireland. He looked for more ways to increase habitats for wildlife on his dairy farm. But he was also becoming increasingly aware that this passion wasn't necessarily shared or talked about by his neighbours.
2: No one w- would ever say uh, the environment was never mentioned. And if you had a liking for birds, God help us. You know, you, you just didn't see it. But I, I remember there was a farm walk here one time and it, it was a Rip's farm walk. And there was a, a busload of farmers came from Mellow from and... Uh, I was asked. Uh, it was a Tagus fairmark, and I was asked to, to speak about barn nest boxes. And this was a first for me, and it was a first for a lot of farmers because it just wouldn't normally be in your topical conversation in a fairmark. So I, I spoke about how Barnolds were in trouble and how there was a need to use rodenticides and put up barn owl nest boxes. And, and that was fine, and, and it finished up. But there was an elderly man came over to me after, and he was actually quite upset. And he said it was the first time he had ever heard anyone. Standing up for for nature, as it were, and it really struck a chord with me. I'd say the poor man is dead now because he was very elderly at the time, but it really struck a chord with me, and it, it kind of it it said to me that that there was no platform for farmers that 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 had a liking for the environment to stand up and 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 and. and and speak out for it. That, that platform wasn't there. And, and there was another instance where we had a farm walk here, uh, for a, 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 actually it was, it was our own farm group, and I was speaking for whatever reason about butterflies, and, and someone said that that was the first time they'd ever heard the word butterfly on a farm walk.
1: Managing some simple habitats on the margins and the edges of his grassland had attracted back wildlife. Yet it was not having the dramatic impact Donald had hoped it would. There was a limit to how much rewilding he could achieve on an intensive farm operation.
2: So it, it, what has come back, I suppose, is because we've managed the hedgerows better now, you have all the, the songbird species, they're plentiful. But it's never going to be uh, an achievement if you bring back a lot of songbirds, because they are kind of the generalists anyway. Whereas really we, we need to start bringing back the ones that are that are really gone, the curlews, the lapwing, the snipe, uh, the skylark. Uh, the, the corncrake, the cuckoo.
1: But how? If Donald was ever going to hear the soundscape of his childhood, something more had to be done. And year on year, the problem was getting worse. Even common birds like the kestrel, a magnificent bird of prey that's been part of the Irish landscape for centuries, were now appearing on red lists of species in trouble. Donal was one farmer trying to put the pieces of a jigsaw back together, with no help or guidance. Then, at a birdwatch meetup, he discovered another farmer who shared his vision.
3: One of the great memories of, of childhood was listening at the winter nights, listening to flocks of lapwings calling at night as they were feeding in the fields.
1: Paul Moore runs an 140-acre mixed tillage and bee farm. His farm on the outskirts of Middleton, just over 20 kilometres south of Donal, is another oasis for nature in a farming heartland. Paul is both a productive farmer and a conservationist and he's definite about what's caused the biodiversity collapse.
3: Any graph of farmland birds you look at, well, it's like a ski slope, uh, you know, coming downhill, sort of, that they're declining. It's just just, just the pressure. As I said, like, it's the, you know, you've got this drive for intensity because of just the, the pressure on prices and wildlife birds are uh, the collateral damage in that. I haven't seen a lapwing here now in, I'd say, seven or eight years. I remember about... I suppose 15, 20 years ago, I was ploughing and you'd always get lapwings and fields ploughing. And I suddenly looked around and said, where are all the lapwings gone? There was only about 30 birds and down from over a thousand. Yeah. And now they're, they're just gone totally. So yeah, lots of birds like that have just either disappeared or declined in general.
1: A wildlife enthusiast from childhood, Paul had always worked to increase habitats on his farm planting trees, leaving some wetlands and reducing inputs like insecticides and fertilisers where he could. His farmland is home to increasingly rare species like barn owls and yellowhammers. Yet despite his efforts, species continued to decline. Instead of providing solutions for Donal, Paul's shared experience seemed to confirm a depressing vista, that there was little they could do in isolation to halt this decline, never mind reverse the damage. But the pair kept talking, looking for options. And then Paul introduced Donal to another Birdwatch member. An ecologist, Tony Nagel.
4: I've known Paul for, who gosh, probably over 30 years now at this stage. Donal then, we met through Birdwatch Ireland as well.
1: Tony had no family or professional background in agriculture. But as an ecologist, he offered Donal and Paul a fresh input.
4: We began knocking our heads together and thinking how could we improve the pretty drastic situation on Irish farmland. Um, It was was all very informal at first. There were numerous cases of we'd be out uh, uh, surveying barn owls or whatever and Donal would come along frequently and I'd pass a comment. For God's sake, do we really need that much herbicide or does that hedgerow have to be bulldozed etc etc.
3: You know, with, with the ecologist as well, it was a perfect, I won't call it a marriage, but it was a perfect um, committee, a little subcommittee. Tony would suggest something, and we'd kind of, Donald myself would look at him and say, yeah, nuts or what, Like coming at it from very different side, the farming side of things. Just had, you know, we had different
4: perspectives. It was great because donald Donal and, and paul are farmers and they both are different types of farmer donald is, is a yeah and he would he would regard himself as and a, he, i think he prefers to say progressive farmer as opposed to intensive but he is you know he's built a very successful dairy farming business uh, paul then would be more focused on beef and tillage so between the two of them bar sheep farming as such you know we, we could actually discuss the bulk of irish agriculture and I would pop questions to them on a regular basis, why can't we, why can't you do this, why can't this be done, Etc. cetera. Uh, and they invariably would give you, give the reasons as to why not, you know, which was the important one, the important answers, if you like. Me being the non-farmer as such, it was easy for me to criticize what was going on. You know, I'm, I, I don't earn a living from farming. I, I certainly would never claim to be an expert on Irish agriculture, but, the two lads were able to answer an awful lot of my questions and explain the reasons why things are the way they are.
1: As the informal chats continued, Donald, Paul and Tony began to fully appreciate both the complexity in restoring ecosystems and the complex infrastructure of agricultural policy and economics that they were trying to work within.
4: And I suppose that's where the problem begins then. Where do you draw the line between intensive agriculture and leaving a space for nature. Um, And unfortunately, nature has been forgotten about throughout that period of intensification.
1: For Donald, this was the crushing reality. He had accommodated nature and wanted to do more, but his efforts ended at his farm gate.
2: So you could be doing everything right, and it's absolutely useless. You know, if I do everything right here, it's just too small an area to make a difference. And then, you know, as I said, if someone else was five miles away, that's not much good either. So you needed this joined up thinking. And Paul is a tillage farmer down in Middleton, and I'm a dairy farmer here in Cass Lines. And, you know, we could be doing everything right, but it was absolutely useless. That was the whole annoying thing about it.
1: What was unusual about Donald and Paul was that they were trying to accommodate nature on intensive farms. But in creating isolated oases, they shared the frustrations of a growing number of farmers scattered in pockets across the country. Farmers who are committed to what is considered an unconventional path of farming with nature.
5: I have a topper. I have a topper and I only use it for rushes. Right. Okay. I don't. I've given up topping now. I mean, I started with one field and it seemed to survive without topping uh, and then we moved on to it and now it's the whole farm.
1: Kim McCall runs a 214 acre mixed livestock farm in Calverstown near Kilcullen Kildare.
5: Well, Basically I inherited the farm and had to do something with it, knew nothing about tillage, didn't know much about stock farming either so I said I'd start somewhere, you know you've got to make mistakes, this mistake's how you learn.
1: Over the years Kim trialled his own best practices on the farm his permanent pasture is managed carefully and as well as very little topping no artificial fertilizers or pesticides are used here
5: what we're doing is we used to do a lot of set stocking and now it's all rotational grazing uh, and then in the wintertime, the sheep are set stocked, and then they just move around, just cleaning up the fields. The idea is to leave some grass, so we can have spring grass. In the but we don't need that big burst of spring grass that the dairy farmer needs, because we've got suckler cows and short grass for the yos and lambs. So you need a, a relatively palatable short grass we don't need vast quantities because uh, with the soccer cows they have got a small calf on them they don't need a bucket of milk they just need a sip and it's very productive um we 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 sort of pulse graze we put a big amount of stock on and then give it a decent rest period which is no somehow no different to the dairy farms but we don't follow every grazing with a bag of nitrogen so what we do is we give it another couple of days rest and the root structure is good the grass is all a native type grasses, and the cows thrive on it, the sheep do well on it, um, and the costs are negligible.
1: For Kim, diversity, that idea of variety, means security. It's the key to both his income and his land's ecosystem. It safeguards Kim from market fluctuations and disease if he doesn't rely on any one income stream or crop, and expands the range of habitats and wild spaces for nature.
5: Every field is surrounded by trees, either old trees or majority of them we planted. We planted, I think, but since my dad, he, he started, about forty thousand trees on the farm. A total mixture: natives, non-natives, exotics, uh, and I think there's room for everything, um, because with the diseases coming in now. Um, you never know what's going to survive so if you plant a monoculture it doesn't really matter what it is if even if it's native and it's dead 10 years later it's been a total waste of time so it's a complete diversity of plants
1: and that's your principle on the farm generally isn't it yes
5: yeah now i do have a monoculture of one breed of cow and i have a sort of a slight polyculture of of sheep but it's just two enterprises uh, and then my son has a firewood en- enterprise. So there's a, there's a couple of different things happening on the farm.
1: And as I look out onto this field here, Kim, I mean, it's, it's quite noticeable. Um, there's a fair few docks left in it. It's not topped. It's not that pristine, mono-grass species in the sward. You're looking out onto a, an older kind of landscape almost.
5: Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the youngest field, reseeding-wise on the farm, I think is about 50 years old. So there's probably very little of that original seed in it. It's gone back to what the rest of the farm is.
1: You don't use fertiliser then either? Don't use fertiliser,
5: don't use sprays, don't top. So we cut our costs way down.
1: But what do you... Is there a trade-off? Do you lose in terms of productivity of the soil? We lose so-called tidiness.
5: um, But we gain huge diversity of plants. We gain diversity in, in animals, insects, and we also get freedom not to worry about tidiness. Yeah. <laughs> it's a freedom, It is a the nicest bit. You're not tied, tied into, uh, it has to be done.
1: It must be very pleasant to farm here.
5: Spring's lovely because you got the, 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 the you got all the calving, you got the lambing. And also you got the bird song starts, the great tits start to wake you up in the morning because they're some of the first to, to get up. And then you, you merge into summer. You know, the most of the animals all the animals are out out of the houses then. They're they're going on their their tour around the farm, leaves on the trees, you know, it's it's a really it's a nice farm to be on because it's a mixed mixed, as you noted, it is mixed topography. There's not many flat fields on it there's different soils there's wet dry and when you go when you are looking at the stock you walk around and you're seeing all these things as well you're noticing the first swallows first butterflies you know it's it's a combination it's holistic farming mm. uh, and at the end of the day you know you have an income out of it um, yeah, there's not too many farmers say they have a really good income um, from killing everything you can get a good income from not killing everything.
1: This has been a deliberate choice of yours though, having these diverse habitats on on the same space.
5: It's going with the flow. Yeah. So if it's a wet area, it's easy to keep it wet. If it's a semi-wet area, it's easy to keep it semi. It's really dry.
1: But there's something more to it than that, Kim. I think it's giving you pleasure.
5: Yeah, it's giving me pleasure. And it's also, I've always been a contrarian.
1: But how has an idea of farming alongside nature come to be seen as contrarian? And it has. Most farmers improve their land by taking out habitats, wetlands or bogs, actively encouraged by decades of agricultural advice, schemes and payments. Those decades of policy and payments lifted thousands of Irish farm families out of poverty and sustained rural Ireland. You're listening
0: to The Farmers Who Went Wild on Documentary on News Talk.
1: On a wet and windy morning, I travel to Roscommon to meet another farmer who not only is keeping the unproductive areas of his farm, but is actively reinstating a large portion of bog.
0: Mary, to give you an idea where you are now, you're on the western shore of Loch Allen and it's on the bank of the Origna River. And we're standing on top of a small little drumlin
1: Thomas Early has a 100-acre farm here with an Aberdeen Angus suckler herd.
0: So we're um, surrounded on every side by bog. And, uh, the farm here, there's a variety of habitats on it. And um, we do put putting in a garden, you could say, down on the bank of the river. So there's a nice bit of soil on the bank of the river. That was always, in this part of the country, it was always called Shroheen ground which it was, it was always nice soil on the bank of the river. So you've, you've got the benefits of what was washed down long, long time ago.
1: This farming landscape is as far from intensification as you can get. With wetter soils and more rainfall, there aren't any 100-acre flat fields of fertile ground around here. What I have is a small
0: herd of suckler cows.
1: And it's organic? It, oh, it's on,
0: yeah, so it's orga- we were orga- organic since 1996. We were probably organic before that, but we didn't know. That was, you know, I hadn't heard of organics before that.
1: How did you get interested in nature? Where did all that begin?
0: Oh, well, I suppose I grew up here on the farm and um, in fairness, I spent more days out when I was in the National School. I spent more days out on the lake than I did in school, you know. So I suppose I grew up with with that natural world around me.
1: Thomas joined REPS in the 1990s. The first mainstream agri-environmental payment scheme opened to Irish farmers. Designed to educate farmers about the unintended impacts of their farming on the ecosystem and then compensate them for preserving wildlife habitats, it was well-subscribed here in the West, where small dry stock farmers were struggling to compete in the single market and looked to supplement their income.
0: Organics was an option in REPS. So we didn't really know much about the organics, to be honest. The fellow that was over the REPS, he said, you have to be nearly organic anyway. So so on, on that chance, we went into it. The organic planner she came down to walk the farm and uh, she took a look around and she says "Asher, she says what you're doing here is mostly conservation so I haven't heard the word before and <laughs> I says is there anything out of that I don't think so she says <laughs> so we continued on with our uh, organics anyway and uh, yeah stuck with it like it wasn't a big change from what we were at anyway you know, I suppose you're lucky enough in that you see the, the cycle of life throughout the year, you know. You see, like, you know, this time of year now everything is bare. and But then there'll there, there come that nice soft days in spring, when everything seems to burst into life. And you're just so happy then that you planted that bit of something last year, you know, when everything was bare. And now you see little leaves starting to come on it, you know, and you see the, the birds starting to look for places to nest. And you know that, you know, if he if didn't have the habitats for them, they're not there. You know, it's as simple as that.
1: Thomas's passion is the environment and wildlife. Walking this farm with him, he's clearly delighted with the wide range of habitats here and the opportunities to attract so many species and birds. So, like, we've hooper swans here. I mean, do you get other types of winter birds come oh, in? Oh you would,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the widgeon duck come in along with them as well. Are you familiar with them? Yeah. In the past we had um, the green and White front of Keith used to stay on the lake here. But uh, we don't have them as much now. What was common stuff one time, you know, the cabbage white butterfly you know, which was the vein of everybody gardener's heart, is actually quite scarce now. And we're not going on to the very rare species. Like, forget about them, they don't have yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? So, it's the common stuff, you know. Yeah. Like, we'd say kids go out for a walk now, and if they see maybe one, two, or three butterflies, was, you know, we were smiling go off and you see, that's what them mirror here and there. Do you know? But we put in the. the the path here right on the edge so that we don't disturb any of the wildlife that might decide to nest out in the middle of the bog
1: and what do you get here what's what is using this
0: Uh, snipe sniper using it Um, in the past we had curlew nesting on it and we hoped that they would return again because they are they're nesting about a mile away you know so if we've got those numbers up they would be looking for new places to nest and i'm sure that they'd move in here yeah, you have other birds using it as well. You'd have, we would say, the the buzzard you see them flying over, you know, checking it out to see if there's nothing in it. We've seen Hin Harrier passing through it, it's a lowland raised bog that we have, and then there's some uh, lake shore, and there's also some old stands of woodland as well. Uh, what else have we? This is a bit of uh woodland that was planted up 10 years ago. Yeah, there's oak woodland and uh. This, this block is oak, yeah. but there's a, a silver birch there, yeah. there's Scots pine. there's
1: European Seedot. arch. So where are we heading to now?
0: Right, so we're heading on down now to a, uh, this area bog.
1: This bogland is the habitat great. Thomas has put the most effort into. I've
0: uh, been doing some drain blocking around on the perimeter of it.
1: And how much raised bog do you have here?
0: There's 25 acres in this block.
1: Okay. Yeah. I always
0: had an interest in the bog and I wanted to preserve it. You know, to, to put it back, would but that was the great thing about being involved in reps, I found out, like, you know, how scarce these habitats were. We have very little intact bog in this country. What we're doing here is, you can see where, there's a, see where that line of trees is around the edge of the bog here. Okay, well, I'll show them, we've we, we blocked the drain, we've dug little ponds here, and the material we took out of those ponds, we used it to block the drain. The whole idea is to slow the water down, come, that's getting away off the bog and to keep the water level high on
1: the bog. For most farmers, blocking drains to flood bogland might sound strange, but Thomas has an eye to its future value.
0: Over the last number of decades, we thought we were doing the right thing by draining them and using them as a fuel. But we're only now starting to realize that bogs are one of the greatest sources of keeping taking carbon out of the air and storing it in the ground. But a bog will only do that if the bog is active, what they call active, okay? You can re-wet a bog, right? And at best, that might hold on to the carbon that's already there. But if, if, if you can get it back into the active, back into an active bog again, that means it'll start to sequester the carbon and start building the carbon again. That means it starts to grow effectively. To grow, to grow, yeah, exactly. And that's what you want.
1: And a growing habitat attracts more wildlife. So this, this is a pool that was put in
0: uh, about two years ago. So you can see that the vegetation is starting to move in from the sides Yes. Yeah. OK? That sort of still water is very good for dragonflies. Really? Oh, super, yeah. That, no, that's what they need.
1: Thomas is an innovator, and to be fair, he's a convert to nature's cause. So the benefits for wildlife always factor in his farming and enterprises rather than a purely financial approach but he recognises that for others to follow suit, there has to be an incentive. If you want if you
0: want people to start to restore their bogs, and a lot of people have small areas of bogs, they're going to look at this and say, ah, look, that's a nice idea, you know what I mean? It's going to cost me money, I'm not going to do that. But if they can say, yeah, well, I spend this much, and then I suddenly I start getting money back for this carbon that I'm saving, because carbon is going to be worth something in the future. And if you'll be able to sell your carbon rights to maybe some local business or something like that. In terms of the government starting to pay out on, on new storing carbon like that, that's we're that's that that's just starting at at the moment, yeah.
1: In terms of farming and that conventional farming has been food production, increase your herd, increase the productivity of the land that you're you're working. You made a decision to go in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah. Why? As it was in the innocence when I was growing up, I thought everybody had a place like this, you know, but only re- you're realising then that, you know, it's it's not, you know, and that what you have here is quite unique and that it needs to be preserved, you know, and kept, you know. This is one of the parts of the problem is that farming was what was seen as being a good farmer was a, that if we say your father had 10 cows on that farm, if you could manage 12, 14 cows on it, now you had more production, so you were a better farmer, but in order to do that, you had to go in on the fields that were a bit wet, you had to drain them, and any ponds of that was probably dried out. Do you know what I mean? So all that wet sort of land was suddenly brought in to produce more grass. And uh, like in fairness to the farmers, they were asked to produce more food cheaply, and they'd done that. But there was a hidden cost in there was our loss of biodiversity. And it's only now we're realising that hidden cost that was in there. And uh, hopefully now that we, we'll, we'll have enough sense to put it back, or some of it back to the way it was. Because if nature gets a chance at all, it'll recover very quickly. You know, it's within our power to do it.
1: Irish farmers like Kim McCall and Thomas Early may be in the minority in that biodiversity is not a fringe element of a productive landscape for them but at the centre of what land ownership and food production is about. For years, marginal lands, special areas of conservation, or organic farmland, have been seen as the fallback in protecting Irish biodiversity and wildlife habitats. It's why protected species like the corn crake are just about hanging on in places like Donegal. With some of the lowest rates of organic farmland in Europe at just around 2%, and the conservation red lists growing here, it's obviously not enough. And it's not working.
6: Sustainability from the environmental side has been a three-legged stool. I would often look at it as water quality, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon, and biodiversity. And I always talk about biodiversity being the third leg of the stool that's often absent. And we we can't have this three-legged stool of sustainability without the biodiversity leg. John Finn works at Chagask, the state's
1: research and advisory body for the agri-food sector. His specialty is farmland ecology and wildlife, and part of his job involves giving talks on biodiversity. But mostly, it was the same types of farmers and landowners showing up.
6: It was very much seen as a niche topic and something that only affected farmers in protected areas, in the, in the special protection areas, in the special areas of conservation, you know, these jewels in the crown of biodiversity. They were already kind of self-selected as the ones that were fierce interested and probably, uh, you know, a, a kind of a specialised group who already had a very strong interest in farmland wildlife and already knew a lot. And at times might, it might have been a little bit of preaching to the converted people know that this wildlife thing is coming down the road. They know that it's important, but they don't have the language to talk about it. They don't have the demonstration farms to talk about it or see, you know, kind of uh, put their hand in the wound, so to speak, and actually go to a farm and see these are wildlife measures and they're not to be afraid of. There's nothing scary about them. They're not threatening the main farm enterprise and the main farm business that these are things that can be fit into a commercially viable, successful business and and still make space for nature.
1: In 2015, John was one of the organisers of a national biodiversity conference. The Collection Hotel in Leash was filled with the usual suspects attending, but this time, one farmer stood out.
6: uh, We'd organised a biodiversity conference, which we do about every four or five years. And uh, I was giving a talk about some new work that we were doing and uh, at the end of the talk there was a couple of minutes for questions and uh, I knew straight away from his accent he was a Corkman and uh, he was asking, you know, these really spot on questions about, you know um, does, your, does your project which is aiming to map the habitats on the farms does it include the ponds, does it include the field margins when, the, when that session was over he made a beeline for me and of course as a carryman you'd always be a bit wary of a Corkman making a beeline for you
1: Donald Sheehan had driven the 140 kilometres from Castle Lyons to hear John speak.
6: Sure, straight away it was as obvious as could be his, his passion for the subject. And I hadn't met Donal before then and I hadn't heard about him. But uh, it was very clear that, he, he made it clear straight away, he was, he was a dairy farmer who had a, a business which was viable and successful. But he also had this huge passion for birds and wildlife and was doing these things on his farm. And at first I didn't know you know, people come up to us all the time and say things and I didn't know, but you know, after about 5 or 10 minutes it was really clear that he knew what he was talking about and he wasn't just talking the talk but he was walking the walk as well as he was talking about areas that he had set aside in his own farm for wildlife, for making ponds putting up bird boxes um, doing bird counts on his own farm and he was looking for having done all this, he was looking for more advice on how to improve on what he was already doing in the past, if you'd meet a couple of individuals who'd be very enthusiastic and you just find out, really, at the end of the day, all they'd done was cut their hedge in a slightly different way and there was nothing too much to get excited about. And to be honest, I drove home that evening and didn't think any more about it.
1: Back in Cork, Donal, Paul Moore and Tony Nagel had been busy. The two farmers and the ecologist now had a clear grasp of what they wanted to achieve and had begun to formulate a plan
2: you know, rewilding your farm is fine, but you you still have to make an income from it. And there aren't many people who who were able to to see uh, how how you can knit the two. I think that's what we were bringing to the table. And, you know, we could be doing everything right, but it was absolutely useless. That was the whole annoying thing about it, you know, that, that it needed to be at a landscape scale. Uh, That was always the problem. It, it, It needed to be at a landscape scale to make a difference.
1: Their plan involved getting the other farmers in the Bride Valley to follow their lead. The challenge would be convincing others that their ideas about making space for nature on the farm was compatible with intensive farming and that what they were proposing wouldn't affect the bottom line.
3: We used to meet up in the foyer of um, a hotel up in Little Island, just kind of equidistant for all of us, and just kind of sit drinking tea and coffee the, for three or four hours a night. And it was, it was a slowly evolving process as, as to what she could do.
4: Just started hammering out what can be done with hedgerows, what can be done with areas of grassland. Um, we literally wrote down idea after idea after idea. We all contributed.
1: Week after week, they met in that hotel foyer. And at the end, the three friends had devised their own agri-environmental scheme, something that usually happens in Brussels, not Little Island. They created lists of changes that farmers could make that would first focus on the unused parts of the farmland and manage them for wildlife. They settled on the Bride Valley because Donald's farm and his connection to the place would give them an in with the community. And it was also a defined landscape.
4: We said it, it would be lovely to roll this out nationwide, but obviously we weren't planning on becoming, you know, uh, trying to solve the problems over the whole country. But we felt that if we could get one geographic area and it is, you know, a small but compact area with a variety of different farmlands and farm, farming enterprises, it, it presented a very good example, if you like, a little microcosm of agriculture in Ireland it's fine having an idea but then you know how do you implement that idea how do you go about uh, persuading farmers that this is a good idea Um, and then most importantly how do you fund those ideas if
2: you wanted this to succeed you needed the milk side of the business you needed the meat side of the business the tillage side of the business and also you needed um, environmental group because it needed to be kind of rubber stamped not just by farmers it it needed to be rubber stamped that was important but we were never going to get it off the ground on our own and we were finding it extremely difficult to get any traction on it
3: i mean there wasn't much support or interest in in farming circles Mm. or even at at, at official above that you know in the department of agriculture and stuff things weren't great but um We're farmers who are interested in biodiversity, so who's better placed, I suppose, than us to do it?
1: They were proposing a project that could help solve a problem now in freefall all across Europe. By 2017, the majority of protected animals, insects, plants and habitats across the EU were under threat, and farmland bird populations were down 55% in just 30 years. Every scientific study identified farm intensification driven by CAP as the primary cause,
2: there was definitely something had to be done, and it, and it was needed. We knew that. We knew that there was there was a serious need to to start something like this. But there was always the problem that you know nobody knew who we were, and and we were only three, you know, two farmers and ecologists, and and it was trying to get traction to get the project off the ground. There was still no funding there.
4: We explored dealing with leader, and that we were going to suggest where we had we, we had a meeting with them. Um, but they would be able to fund so much, but you had to match that funding, and that was always going to be an issue. Where were we going to come up with the funding to match this? Donal and myself attended. Leader were, were hugely supportive.
2: Of it. it was it was Avendu Blackwater Leader Group, and and as well as that, it needed to be um, it needed to be substantial. You weren't going to improve biodiversity, you know, giving us a thousand euros and you know, print off a few flowers. It it needed to be
3: substantial funding. We did a fair bit of looking around and got kicks in the rear end, I suppose you could say, for our efforts. Um, You know, I can remember a a fairly deflated meeting, as you you say, just kind of saying, God, are we mad? Are we just going anywhere? You know, is it a waste of time?
2: Our expectations are always huge. You know, the the battle is always flowing out over the top with us. But it it, it, it was a a total eye-opener because um, there was just it, it, we were just left deflated there was just no funding and that was it and, and and I remember driving home and could not figure out where we were going with this it was it was really that was the end of it you know because there was there was, there was no other, other avenue open to us really uh, unless unless someone was uh, a Jeff Bezos character was going to come along and and, and, and us a million euros which was unlikely as well
1: Jeff Bezos did not come along or any billionaires like him But the story doesn't end there. In the next episode...
6: I might have tipped them off saying, look, this might suit your plans. And we just suddenly saw this
4: as possible because projects project like that will fund the whole project without us having to match anything. Unfortunately, it's not something I'm good at, is putting an application
2: together.
1: The Farmers Who Went Wild is presented by Mary Brophy and is written and produced by Neil Boyle. It is an IWR Media production for News Talk funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.